guys. Um, we're going to get started. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. Uh, the topic is animals in transit. Uh, my name is Marissa Haidt, and I'm a member of the Animal Law Committee here at the New York City Bar. Um, and I'll be serving as your moderator today, along with Barry Wolf, who's also a member of the Animal Law Committee. Um, tonight, we have a great presentation planned. We have four speakers who are here, um, who will talk, be talking about various issues that highlight some of the intersect um, between uh, animals and transit and society, including issues of disability, disaster relief, ride sharing, modes of transportation, animal access, just to name a few. Um, you'll be hearing tonight from Cleo King, jo Joelle Lopez, Aaron Abrams, and Evan Ocean. The structure of tonight's program is that we'll hear from all four speakers, and then we'll have a Q&A at the end, um, which will be moderated by Barry. Um, it's an open forum, and we'd like to hear from all sides, and, um, but we ask that you hold all questions to the Q&A. And um, before we get started, I'd like to thank the Transportation Committee and Disability Law Committee who are co-sponsoring the event, and also to our chair of our committee, Chris Welch, for coordinating such a great event. Thank you. Um, so our first speaker is Cleo King, right here. <laughs> um, Cleo King serves as the Deputy Commissioner and General Counsel at the New York City Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities. Uh, prior to New York City Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities, prior to joining the MOPD, Cleo was Senior Vice President for Ex Accessibility Services at United Spinal Association. Cleo has worked in the accessibility field for over 30 years. She served as the Vice Chair of the American Bar Association's Committee on Delivery of Legal Services to the Disabled, the New York City Bar Association's Committee on Legal Issues Affecting People with Disabilities, where she served as chairperson, the U.S. Access Board's Courthouse Access and Durable Medical Equipment Advisory Committees, and Cleo received her law degree from George Mason University School of Law and is admitted to the Virginia and New York State Bars. So without further ado, Cleo. Thank you. Um, okay, I just want to make sure everybody can hear me. Um, so I actually was asked to give an overview of the various laws that address service animals, um, and there is quite a few of them. Usually I do a presentation on the Americans with Disabilities Act, and I have a few slides on service animals, and I always save them to the end because once I talk about service animals, the conversation turns to service animals, and an hour later I get to the rest of my slides. So um, I know it is a very hot topic. Um, in all aspects, whether it be transportation, housing, employment, but tonight I know we're focusing on transportation. So I'm just going to give a brief overview of the various laws we all have to think about when we're uh, boarding some type of uh, transportation <coughs> around the city uh, or around the country. And, um, and then all the other speakers, I think, will probably flesh out the, the basic overview I'm going to give. So I figured I would start with the federal requirements. So, of course, there's the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990, and so it's going to have its 30th birthday this summer. And that, um, it, when it comes to transportation, it would be Title II, which it governs state or local governments, or Title III, which is public accommodation. So it depends on what kind of transit we're talking about or transportation we're talking about. And in 2010, the United States Department of Justice changed its definition to service animals to um, a, an animal 
and it specifically said a dog and in certain circumstances a miniature horse and a lot of people always go well why a miniature horse and that's because a few of the people that were on the committee that passed ADA initially were from states that have miniature horse training facilities so they were able to get to keep miniature horses in there but a miniature horse a lot of times when I'm talking I, I have slides usually and I have a picture of a miniature horse it's about the size of a Great Dane really it's not the pony we all rode when we were kids that's a lot bigger than a miniature horse and miniature horses are trained specifically to be service animals so um, while the ADA says dogs and in some instances service animal are horses they're specifically talking about service animals and the definition of service animal is uh, animal in this case a dog or a miniature horse that have been trained to provide services for people with disabilities to do certain tasks for maybe a person who is blind they're going to guide them and help them navigate streets for somebody in a wheelchair they may be able to open doors pull a wheelchair pick up objects that uh, a person drops for a person who is deaf they might be able to alert somebody to alarms going off um, and they're also psychiatric service animals who can detect stress or something in someone who has maybe post-traumatic stress uh, and let them know they're they're you know gonna have or and they also have service animals that can detect if somebody is going to maybe have um, a seizure so a, a lot of times a service animal may be accompanying someone who isn't doesn't appear to have a disability but they do have a service animal um, so a service animal people can only ask two questions is the animal a service animal and is it trained to do functions to help you with your disability they can ask what functions it does what your disability is um, so a lot of times when uh, people may try to uh, determine if there it is a service animal and they ask those two questions but they can also ascertain if the animal is behaving like a service animal and I always give the example I have two dogs at home one is very well trained and but still they're not trained as a service animal if somebody was eating something that would pique their interest they might go over sniff your food a service animal would never do that a service animal is trained to stay with their handler and do the functions that they're performed to do they're working when they're with their handler um, the service animal usually needs to be on a leash or a harness unless the person's disability doesn't allow them to hold a leash or a harness then the service animal has to be within their control by voice commands or some other kinds of commands and will stay by their side and the service animal is always working so um, you don't go up and pet it and you don't treat it like it's a pet now it's so cute um, so that's just the basics of service animal emotional support animal is an animal that somebody may have for comfort and the comfort is that animals traditionally and we we've seen it on TV animals go into nursing homes 
Um, you know, it's just the nature of the animal may calm people, may make people feel happier, but it's not trained to do anything specific. It's just the animal and people like animals and animals can be calming and friendly. And so that's the difference between emotional support animals. Americans with Disabilities Act does not allow emotional support animals. So a business or a transportation provider under the ADA would not have to uh, take an emotional support animal. That being said, when the U.S. Department of Justice changed the regulation in 2010 and said a dog or in some circumstances a miniature horse, the United States Department of Transportation, which governs uh, federal transit authorities, so the MTA, um, has to abide by their rules and they did not change their definition of service animal. So under the Department of Transportation rules, a service animal could be more than a dog or a miniature horse. For example, it could be a monkey. Um, so there, uh, uh, I've seen service pigs actually. Um, so there, under Department of Transportation, the definition could be more than a dog. But again, it's still, you can all, the transit authority personnel could only ask the same two questions. They could only uh, not allow the animal um, if the person says, yes, it's my service animal, if it's not acting like a service animal. Um, so Department of Transportation and in the transit world goes a little bit further. Um, so there's different transit. Some transit is governed by being a Title II or Title III entity, so ADA and others are governed by U.S. Department of Transportation, Federal Transit Administration, so they're governed by those rules, so it may be more than a dog. And the third federal law we have is the Air Carrier Access Act, and this has been in the news a lot, and this is probably one of the reasons we're having this forum. Under the Air Carrier Access Act, emotional support animals are allowed. There are certain requirements. You have to give 48 hours notice. You need to have a note from your doctor saying why, what, why you need the emotional support animal for your disability. Um, Air Carrier Access Act does not limit either service animals or emotional support animals to dogs. Um, so we've heard stories of you know well um, you know different types of animals. I know in the news I saw a peacock. Um, so. Department of Transportation and the air, air carrier world is getting a little nervous and they've at, there was a, chair, a committee that was made up of air carriers and groups that represent people with disabilities to discuss, you know, should we limit it more to the ADA? Should it just be dogs, maybe cats? Um, should we still allow emotional support animals? Emotional support animals would travel in carriers, but if you needed it to calm you during the flight, you could take it out. Um, air carrier that has two layers. There's domestic. You f you're flying from New York to San Francisco. That allows different types of animals. If you're flying a foreign carrier to a foreign country, they're only required to accept dogs. If you're flying an American carrier to a foreign country, then um, you have to make sure you could take other animals as long as the country you're flying to will accept different animals. A lot of countries will not accept service animals or certain types of service animals. So it's just mind-boggling if somebody actually has a service animal, 
all the regulations they have to understand, not to mention all the regulations that the transportation providers need to understand. And that's just the federal level. Then we get into New York State human rights law, which pretty much mimics the Americans with Disabilities Act and requires service animals to be dogs. Um, they don't really address emotional support animals. I actually had some correspondence that came from a constituent about there's a rule, New York Code of Rules and Regulations, and I think it's in the document that uh, it was attached to the invitation for this uh, event. There is a, in that, um, the New York Code of Rules and Regs, it actually says that the animal has to be trained by a professional under the air, under all the laws I've talked about, ADA, DOT regs, uh, Air Carrier Access Act, state human rights, city human rights, it does, the service animal does not have to be trained by a professional. A lot of times there's long waiting lists to get a service animal trained by certain groups. So an individual can train a service animal, the individual with a disability can train their own service animal. There's no certification that you need to show that it was trained by such and such an organization. Um, there, the transportation provider can't ask for proof, can't say, show us that it was trained by a professional. It can be trained by the individual. So um, that rule has been on the books for a long time and it is in conflict with the federal, state, and city requirements. And then I've saved New York City human rights law for last because New York City human rights law doesn't have a definition of service animal in their law. Um, they would definitely follow the ADA requirements for a dog. They have, they, but they look on case-by-case -case basis at other types of animals. Um, I know a few years ago they were looking at actually a monkey. It happened to be in a housing situation at the time. The, the person, the landlord was fine with it, but because health code doesn't allow certain doesn't allow exotic animals, we needed to get approval from the Department of Health and Human Rights was trying to negotiate that so the individual could have their service monkey. So once he has a service monkey in his apartment, he would be able to travel with it around the city. The other thing the city human rights law does not talk about really is emotional support animals. And um, so for emotional support animals, they would treat that as a reasonable accommodation on a case-by-case -case basis. So if an individual wanted to board a bus, say with their emotional support cat, and the bus driver said, no, you can't come on, that person could then file a, a city human rights complaint uh, about being able to board the bus with their emotional support cat. And then <coughs> if, if the circumstances of the case found and the human rights law found that the person had a disability <coughs> and they needed that animal in order to be able to ride the bus and go to where they were going, um, they might find that the person should be reasonably accommodated and the bus driver and the bus company needs to um, comply and let that person travel with their emotional support cat. So that's a lot of information. So basically, um, when it comes to transportation, service animals definitely need to be allowed. Only a certain number of questions can be asked. And if the animal is acting out, 
barking, nipping at people, then perhaps it's not trained really as, an as a service animal, but even if it is trained as a service animal and it's just having a bad day or something is throwing it off, it's, if it's not behaving properly, the uh, entity can say, you know, you, you can't have the animal here until you get it under your control. Maybe the person leaves, calms the animal down, and, and then can come back in. If it truly is a service animal, then it will, you know, start behaving appropriately. Um, so uh, in New York City, again, we go that step further and we and entities do have to think about emotion. If the person has a disability, an emotional support animal may be allowed in the city. Thank you. Um, next, I'd like to introduce Joelle Lopez. Um, Joelle Lopez has been with the ASPCA for more than 12 years. In his role as Senior Director, Planning and Field <coughs> Operations with Field Investigations and Response, Joel has been responsible for overseeing all planning and operations of large-scale cruelty cases and disaster response efforts nationwide. Joel has overseed the department's responder and response partner programs, which allows the ASPCA to call on animal welfare agencies and professionals to assist in rescuing, caring for, and rehoming animals in crisis. Joel first joined the ASPCA back in 2006 as an administrative and outreach manager for the ASPCA's mobile spay and neuter clinic in New York City, where he directed our, he directed ASPCA's grassroots outreach efforts. Thank you. Over. Hi everyone. Good evening. Um, I am vice president of the ASPCA Adoption Center, and that's in our shelter in the Upper East Side. And I'm three weeks into that role, so it's a, a lot of learning. But as you heard, I was in my previous team, which is the ASPCA's Field Investigations and Response Team, for eight years. Um, and there, um, we were, were basically an animal response team that responded nationally to disasters and cruelty. And why would one team do both of those? because the core competencies are the same, to ID animals, to move them safely, and to care for them. So what does an ASPCA disaster response look like? I'm showing you our biggest one. Uh, this is the fourth quarter of 2017, uh, Harvey Irma Maria. Um, so back-to-back -back hurricanes, it was kind of a national response. And you might be wondering, you know, what does Oregon and California have to do with it? Well, that's the difference in the colors. The colors, uh, orange is where we had resources on the ground, and the greens are where we transported animals to out of uh, areas of danger and evacuated them to shelters and rescue groups that were unaffected. Uh, we transported over 1,500 animals by ground and by air over about a three-month period uh, to cover all three storms. And to just call out some of the legend here, the shopping bags are places where we provided evacuation supplies, crates, food, cages. Um, the paws are where we actually sent uh, rescue teams on the ground to um, help with the direct care and rescue of animals. Uh, at the end of that 90-day uh, period, we assisted over 30,000 animals. So why are we looking at Hurricane Katrina? Because Hurricane Katrina was a lessons learned response for everybody, especially animal welfare. It was a game changer. Why was it a game changer? Because that image right there, went, uh, the, the guy here, went viral before viral was a thing. This was the first time that we saw on our TVs animals not being part of a plan and the impact of that. 
In this case, this man was not able to transport via mass transit with his animal and was stuck on his roof. And now, what is it going to take to rescue that guy and his animal? Is it a helicopter? Is it a boat team with trained and skilled professionals? Um, and I bet you with the news choppers above, they're going to take the dog this time. Um, it would have been way cheaper and safer to do it up front. We know that 30 to 40% of people just won't evacuate. Um, we saw that during Hurricane Michael, even though they were calling for Category 4, people still stayed home. Um, and we know that pet owners, a third of them will not leave without their pets. Why? Because pets are family. This is a woman at a temporary shelter that we set up um, in Memphis in 2011 as some rivers were flooding. And this was someone looking for temporary boarding, leaving it at a facility with veterinarians, behaviorists, trained personnel, and it's still that difficult. So Hurricane Sandy gave us a lot of lessons, a lot of learning, and put us in a really great position for Sandy. So we were better organized as an animal welfare community. We were better trained. We were equipped. Um, government learned municipal, county, and state, and federal to give access to animal resources because you can't separate pets from people. Um, but during Sandy, we were missing a piece, and that was the transportation piece. People did not have the ability to help themselves which required more resources to go in and help them after the fact. But I love New York. Um, New York, it is the biggest city that I know about that actually has plans for animals uh, in disasters. When the, um, animal, when the coastal uh, disaster plan is activated by New York City Emergency Management, immediately the shelters start opening up all over the city and they have spots for animals. Uh, New York City has a co-located model, which means that in the same building, they will have a space for people and a separate space for animals. And that's what New York City practices. Um, the way we get involved with that, as soon as these shelters open up and animals start coming in, we start sending assessment teams around to the shelters to make sure they have what they need. This is a veterinarian, Dr. Rhonda Windham, who is doing medical rounds at all of the shelters, making sure animals were healthy and, and writing referrals if they needed. And also behaviorists to go through uh, and handle animals that are stressed out when they're not at home. But not everyone made it to the evacuation centers because not everyone could get there. Not everyone could get on the train, could get on a, you know, a bus, uh, could get in a cab with a large breed dog. And we had to send teams into, that's uh, the Rockaways right there, into dangerous situation, uh, skilled personnel um, uh, going in and doing the best for what they could. So uh, we knew that a lot of people left their animals behind, so we made it easy for them to communicate it. So uh, the ASPCA has the world's only animal poison control center in Illinois. Uh, so we have that core competency of bone center, and we actually activated it to support New Yorkers in uh, allowing residents to communicate needs. And we got a lot of requests um, for field rescue through that mean. Uh, I'm gonna do a quick detour on these logos on the bottom here. Um, these are the members of the New York City's Animal Planning Task Force. This is a group that's facilitated by New York City Emergency Management. We meet on a monthly basis in their headquarters in Brooklyn. And um, this is a very functional resource group that's involved all the time, not just in disasters. Uh, there are a lot of blue sky emergencies. Those are fires, building collapses, explosions. And uh, we are active whenever uh, New York City Emergency Management activates due to a big impact of lots of residents we're in the loop and we're making sure that animal needs are met. Um, it is a little self-serving to say, but I've been around the, a lot of the country and they don't have groups that meet the gap uh, of government like um, the Animal Planning Task Force. 
So um, we had to send a lot of teams in um, with owner requests, going to evacuation centers, collecting keys even to go and then go into disaster zones and help. So it's a, it's a lot of resources, a lot of time that we're not doing other work that could benefit more animals and be a little bit more, more efficient. And the animals are freaked out right here, strangers coming into their home. Uh, these animals are fearful. Um, in many cases, they were starving, dehydrated, cold. If you remember Hurricane Sandy, no power, and it was really, really cold. And we would find animals like this dog um, that we would immediately have to stabilize their temperature and, and, and get them medical care. And then luckily you're seeing reunifications happening in these photos. Another issue, and we saw this in the far Rockaways um, because they were, people were stuck there. The trains weren't running, buses weren't running, they couldn't get out before. So we had medical emergencies happening in a community where also human emergencies were happening, right? People are living their lives, animals are living their lives and they're running into health issues. So we had to deploy uh, emergency medical clinics with veterinarians to see these animals. Um, while we were there, we made the animals more resilient by vaccinating, microchipping, making sure they were as healthy as possible. But again, these vets were now just, you know, having to go into the field and not worrying about the populations that were already at the evacuation centers. And, I mean, I say all of this to say uh, thank you, um, especially to Assembly Member uh, Linda Rosenthal, who was instrumental in pushing together forward laws that have now connected all the pieces and are making this a thing of the past. Um, so two laws we'll talk about. One relates to a law um, two years ago, which impacted the MTA, and then last year, which was the New, Jersey, uh, New York, New Jersey Port Authority. So the MTA uh, came out in 2017 and they established some guidelines which are just common sense guidelines like the animal should have appropriate equipment, it should be safe and healthy, um, we should be prioritizing people over animals um, and uh, uh, that, that happened um, in 2017. And then last year <coughs> the piece of the puzzle came because New Jersey, actually the, the New Jersey part of New York, New Jersey Transit, they did this in 2013. Lucky for us and animals in New York City, nothing in major has happened, like Sandy. So actually, this is really good timing. So if it happens again, we're in much better position, and New Yorkers are in better position to help themselves. So last year, uh, the New York side of New York, New Jersey transportation um, completed the law. So now animals can move throughout the city, and they can move out of the city, which is a big deal um, for outcomes for animals. And this allows us to focus on other work that has better economies of scale, right? We're impacting hundreds of animals instead of the one cat, which we love that one cat, but we'd rather apply our resources more efficiently. Um, during Sandy, we established an emergency boarding facility in uh, Brooklyn. And that was because so many people were out of their homes due to long-term power outages or mold issues and mold treatments that they needed time to get their lives together. They needed a little bit of time and our goal was to avoid people having to give up their animal because they didn't have a spot for them for the short term. And boarding is expensive in New York, and these are folks who are already spending lots of money on other things. We wanted them to focus on their situation while we cared for their animals. Uh, we cared for 300 animals in that facility. Another great thing that we're able to do when we're not focused on field rescue is taking care of essential needs like food. Um, we launched a massive um, food distribution program um, along with the uh, Red Cross and um, impacted about 40,000 animals in New York City. And not just people who were directly impacted, but those who were economically impacted. 
so they couldn't get to work, their places of work were destroyed, and that economic hardship um, that comes when you're, you're not able to work for whatever reason. Um, and um, we're, we're in really good shape in New York City. We appreciate all the efforts made. Um, we love these happy endings that you see here, but these are very intensive happy endings. Each of these photos are people that were separated from their pets due to transportation, that we were able to apply resources and reconnect those families. And thanks to a lot of the work of our legislators and uh, Linda Rosenthal, um, this is a thing of the past, and New York City continues to be ahead of the curb on animals and disasters specifically. You want to whip out your phone and take some photos of this. Um, these are our legislative experts at the ASPCA. Uh, Bill is regional in New York State. Um, Michelle is right here in New York City. If you have any questions as it relates to uh, transportation or laws in general in New York as it relates to animals, um, these folks have tons of experience that will be able to help you out. Uh, and that's it for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, next up, we have. Aaron Abrams. Aaron Abrams is the general counsel at VIA Transportation, a technology startup in the on-demand shared riding space. As the head of legal risk and compliance teams at VIA, Aaron's portfolio covers corporate transactions, venture-backed financing, insurance, cybersecurity, and data privacy, technology, licensing, commercial agreements, transportation, regulatory, and licensing issues employee and independent contractor matters, and litigation. Aaron also manages VIA's patent portfolio and oversees risk insurance and compliance functions at VIA. Prior to joining VIA, Aaron was senior vice president of the compliance department of Citigroup in New York, where her group was tasked with preventing and detecting insider trading and other financial crimes. And before going in-house, Aaron was a litigator in the white collar criminal and securities group at Freed Frank for seven years. Aaron holds a BA from Duke in political science and a JD from Harvard. Thanks for that great introduction. I really appreciate it. Of course. Um, so when I heard about this panel, I was really excited to join because VIA loves animals and uh, we've had lots of experience dealing with animals in various different capacities. Um, for those of you who don't know uh, about VIA, happy to give you a little introduction. Uh, we're an on-demand shared ride company. We are headquartered in New York. We first launched our services in New York. Uh, we focus on shared rides, uh, which generally reduce congestion and emissions um, and are more sustainable, uh, more efficient, better for the environment. Um, we have since expanded. We just did our 50 millionth ride. Um, and so we've expanded to um, Chicago, DC, London, Amsterdam, uh, Berlin. Uh, we now have VIA in 57 cities and countries around the world uh, in every continent but Antarctica. Um, and many of those places we operate <coughs> in partnership with governments, so private and public sector partnerships launching via service um, as an extension of public transit, partnering with municipalities. Uh, so we've seen lots of different iterations of ways to incorporate uh, animals into our service. Um, generally speaking, uh, ride sharing uh, and animals in transit uh, are a hot topic. Uh, you might be aware, you might have seen some uh, uh, litigation or you know, headlines about litigation uh, for other ride sharing companies um, explaining that, uh, that they, they have uh, found themselves in local or state court uh, for denying uh, service animals accommodation, um, failing to accommodate guide animals, um, and you know, quite a big discrepancy between uh, what is required of ride-sharing companies, what is required of uh, taxis and uh, um, buses and uh, on the metro, uh, and then again, what is required uh, um, uh, on a federal level and with um, airlines in particular. 
And as Cleo alluded to, you know, airlines have uh, much, um, you know, much expanded protections for service animals uh, and, and uh, emotional support animals as well. And that's something that we um, come across quite a bit. We have a lot of queries that people ask to us um, about how we accommodate different types of animals. Uh, and so this is something that, that comes up for us a lot. Uh, I won't go too deep into the um, you know, different legal regimes. I think Cleo gave a really nice overview of what they are, but generally uh, the main uh, legal regime that applies to us and that we uh, consider when we're making our policies about how to accommodate animals uh, is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which requires us to accommodate service animals um, without restriction or res without restraint, which we do. Um, in addition, uh, the state New York human rights law also, you know, as Cleo mentioned, uh, parallels the uh, ADA and requires the accommodation of service animals, uh, but the city, uh, New York City's human rights law, uh, is a little bit broader and a little bit more expansive. Doesn't specify the type of animal, is silent with respect to emotional support animals, um, and provides for some additional rights and remedies uh, beyond what you might necessarily receive uh, under, under the ADA. So New York is one of the cities that is the most protective, uh, has the most expansive protections for service animals, um, but we see a lot of blurring of the lines between uh, emotional support animals, service animals, other types of companion or therapy animals, and pets. Um, and we like to accommodate all animals, uh, but we have a legal requirement to accommodate service animals. So we see along a continuum a lot of requests to accommodate different types of animals. This comes up quite a bit um, you know, in, in providing the best possible service that we can to our customers. Um, we also work with uh, advocates in the disability rights community to try to improve our product and services. Uh, you know, we have uh, an ex a continuing relationship with a lighthouse um, for a service for um, people who are blind or visually impaired to talk about how we can provide better services uh, to people who have guide dogs that help people who are blind or who are visually impaired. Um, we recently launched a, a wheelchair accessible service. Um, and we're trying to figure out ways that we can um, utilize wheelchair accessible vehicles to accommodate people who um, may also have service animals, whether they're in a wheelchair with a service animal or whether they are able-bodied but their service animal requires extra space, which a wheelchair accessible vehicle may have. Um, so we're looking at different synergies there. Um, uh, these, these animals are pets of, uh, of, of the VIA team, by the way. That's how we got some of these cute animals. Um, I have a dog myself, and my dog rides around in VIAs uh, from time to time. And we generally consider ourselves to be a very uh, um, pet-friendly service. Uh, and, uh, you know, we try to accommodate all sorts of different types of animals. So our official policy is that all service animals are uh, welcome to ride in VIA without restriction, without restraint. Uh, and that's in compliance with our requirements under the ADA. Uh, we also train our drivers. Uh, our drivers are independent contractors, but we train them about their uh, obligations under federal, state, and local law, and we inform them that they're prohibited from denying service to anyone who might be traveling with a service animal, and that's not an acceptable reason to you know, refuse to pick up a passenger. We also, throughout the culture, throughout the company, enforce our zero tolerance policy. So we have a policy against discrimination of all types, uh, including against people with disabilities, uh, and that includes not only people who have a, a visible disability that the driver might be able to see and recognize, but also uh, someone who's traveling with a service animal who might not have a visible or highly recognizable disability, but whose service animal nonetheless performs a certain function. Um, we also like to accommodate all sorts of other animals, dogs and cats and pets. Um, but they have to be in an airline-approved container uh, in order to ride in the via, uh, in a, um, a cage or a soft shell bag. Um, and those pets also have to not be disruptive to other riders. 
um, especially because VIA is a shared service. We kind of have to balance the needs of people who are traveling with their pets and with their companion animals with the needs of other riders who might not want to be in close proximity to pets, might have allergies or fear of animals. And when we're not talking about a service animal, but we are talking about a companion animal or a pet, then those are considerations that we tend to have to balance. Um, made this kind of chart, and this is a chart that we also share with our uh, um, member services team so they can understand the difference between service animals and emotional support animals. This is something that comes up quite a bit. Um, generally, a service animal is trained to perform a specific task, uh, and some specialty training is required. Maybe they assist someone who's blind or visually impaired. Uh, maybe they can um, you know, identify if someone who has epilepsy is about to have a seizure. Um, maybe they help someone who has limited mobility uh, retrieve particular items. But they have a specific task. That's what service animals uh, all have in common. Uh, whereas emotional support animals, they may provide companionship. They may make people feel better. You know, even people who have um, you know, medical issues or disabilities, they might rely on emotional support animals to help them uh, and to keep them calm and to regulate their moods, um, but they don't necessarily have the specific training uh, of a service animal. Um, an important distinction is that service animals have a right to access all public accommodations with their handlers, um, and they're also allowed <coughs> to be in public and private transportation vehicles like VIAs. Uh, emotional support animals, generally speaking, don't have those same rights under the ADA or under New York state law. Under New York City law, I think generally the way that we have handled that and the way that our policies have approached that is that we do allow emotional support animals to be accommodated in a VIA, but we treat them more like pets in that they have to be in an airline approved container, uh, they have to not be disruptive to other riders, and we would consider a request to accommodate um, a disabled passenger uh, with an emotional support animal uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. So we think that's pretty consistent with our interpretation of New York City's human rights law. Um, in both cases, um, oh, we, we know that drivers aren't required to provide food or supervision or special locations for the animal, that those are the obligations of the handler. Um, and in both cases, uh, animals are not required to wear or carry or present any kind of identifying documentation. And this comes up quite a lot. Uh, I think there's a common misconception among drivers that we often try to educate them about um, that a service animal must wear a vest, must have a license, must have a tag, that there must be some sort of obligation of the handler to prove uh, that an animal is in fact a service animal. And so we're continually educating our driver workforce that there isn't an obligation to prove that an animal is a service animal. And actually there are only certain questions you can ask and then, you know, then the, the animal is presumed to be a service animal based on the responses to those questions without the need to provide further documentation. Um, and then, you know, as I mentioned before, if an animal is an emotional support animal, needs to be in a carrier or a bag, needs to be appropriately restrained, if the animal is a service animal, then it can ride without restriction, without restraint. Um, something else that's pretty important to us at VIA is ensuring that all of our riders have a really awesome experience riding in our vehicles. And one of the ways we do that is through training. We train our member services agents who provide live phone support to drivers and to riders, uh, and we train our drivers on these policies. Um, so we make sure that our drivers only know they can ask legally permitted questions about service animals and not inappropriate questions. Um, uh, we know, you know, we teach our drivers that uh, there aren't any restrictions on uh, the size of the service animal. Uh, with respect to the type of animal, the animal can be a dog or in some cases a miniature horse. As Cleo pointed out, we have not had a uh, miniature horse ride in India yet, although I personally am looking forward to it. I think that would be kind of neat. Uh, no one has tried yet, uh, but I have seen pictures of them. They look extremely cute. I would like to see one. Um, uh, we tell drivers they can refuse to carry a pet 
um, which would include an emotional support animal, uh, if the rider confirms that it's not a service animal, and if it's not in a, a container or a carrier. Uh, also, if the, the pet is disruptive, you know, if the pet is not trained or housebroken or is upsetting to, to other riders, particularly in a shared ride context. Uh, but generally, in, in all of the cases, it's our top priority uh, to help riders get to their location safely, um, and that includes riders who are traveling with a service animal. Uh, so here's a little graphic that kind of illustrates what are the appropriate questions um, and what are not appropriate questions. This is something that we show to drivers, and it's easy infographic that kind of makes it clear uh, what they can and cannot ask. So a driver can ask to a rider who boards a vehicle with an animal, is the animal required because of a disability? And also, what work or task has the animal been trained to perform? Uh, the driver cannot ask, do you have valid documentation to show that your pet is a service animal? Um, you know, why doesn't your dog have a vest? What does the dog do? What is your disability? What is wrong with you? Um, you know, these are questions that maybe you know, drivers who don't have a lot of background or education on these topics might intuitively think are appropriate, and part of our role in training them and educating them is explaining to them that these are not appropriate questions to ask to riders. Um, we're traveling with service animals. Um, you know, so, so what do we do if we receive a complaint? What do we do if um, someone lets us know that they've tried to ride with a service animal and things have not gone smoothly? Uh, so generally, we will reach out to that rider very proactively. Uh, we will um, rebook their ride if necessary. So if for some reason they were not accommodated or they didn't feel comfortable in the first driver's car who attempted to pick them up, we'll rebook them right away, get them to their destination quickly, safely, efficiently. Um, once we ensure that they've safely arrived at their destination, uh, we'll issue them a credit for the ride that they took, and an additional credit so that they can take another ride with you to kind of compensate them for their negative experience. Then after the ride is completed, we initiate a pretty deep dive uh, review process. Uh, we tell the driver about the complaint, we collect information uh, from the passenger, from the driver, from any other riders who were in the vehicle about what might have happened. We give the driver some retraining on our policies and on regulations. Um, we explain to the drivers that if they have an allergy of animals or they have um, a fear of animals, that those are not legitimate reasons to fail to accommodate a service animal. Uh, they can be reasons why a driver would not accommodate a pet, but if an animal is a service animal, that they have to accommodate them, um, and that those are not excuses that they can give to a rider in the moment, um, that that violates our obligations. Um, and then we you know, give the driver continuing education to prevent a recurrence of this kind of behavior. Uh, we also issue discipline to drivers. Uh, if they uh, are not able to comply with these policies, we give them a final warning the first time we hear about something like this. If it seems very egregious or intentional, we can move directly to restricted access or disaffiliation. Um, and we try to help the drivers understand the seriousness of these offenses. Uh, but if there's a second occurrence and the drivers really don't seem to respect or understand the policies, then we take that extremely seriously. We consider that a violation of our, um, uh, we consider that a violation of our, uh, our policies, uh, and then we uh, will disaffiliate from the drivers, um, you know, uh, and suspend them from our service permanently. Um, so we had a recent complaint um, that we resolved successfully in this space. Um, it was a complaint before the New York Human Rights Commission um, from August of 2017. Uh, that's typically in New York City where people tend to bring complaints um, about failure to accommodate a service animal. <coughs> we had a rider who was blind uh, and he had a service animal. Uh, he's a very frequent and regular rider. He takes a lot of vias. Um, he had alleged that he uh, had not been accommodated in some cases. 
this kicked off a very deep internal investigation process within VIA where we looked at all of his rides and what happened in each one of them. Uh, we also cooperated with the New York Human Rights Commission in their discovery process and provided quite a lot of information to them about, uh, about this particular individual and his rides. Through the course of discovery, we learned that in most cases, um, the plaintiff and his service animal actually had been accommodated. Uh, in the few cases where he wasn't accommodated, um, we were able to rebook him very quickly and provide another ride to get him safely to our destination, and that our policies were followed by our employees and at the corporate level. That being said, the individual drivers who failed to follow our policies were appropriately disciplined according to you know, the, the escalations process that I laid out before. Um, we also took corrective action to improve our training methods so that we made sure that every driver was getting this information and that this was widely disseminated amongst our driver population. Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, the complaint was dismissed uh, in September of 2018, and the plaintiff involved in that case actually continues to ride with VIA near daily with his service animal. Uh, gives us a lot of five-star ratings, so we managed to retain him as a happy customer. Uh, so what's next? What is, what is the next frontier for service animals? So um, here you see the emotional support peacock uh, at JFK. Um, we uh, have not yet uh, seen the emotional support peacock in Avia. Um, we hear the emotional support peacock lives in Brooklyn, so it, it, it may become a test case at some point in the future. Um, but you know, we, we are trying to think about what will happen in the future um, with respect to accommodating non-dog service animals, such as the miniature horse. Um, you know, they have to be housebroken, they have to be under the owner's control. Um, you know, uh, it's sort of a, a unique corner case, but because we're interested in these issues, uh, you know, I'd like to hear more about them and consider them. Um, and uh, we're interested to hear about people who may bring um, other types of animals, companion animals, emotional support animals, um, or pets that are not dogs or cats. Um, we have had a few limited instances of those. Um, and generally speaking, you know, when the animal's not a service animal, we really have to balance the, uh, the, the needs of the passengers, uh, especially in a shared ride in close confined um, quarters, uh, with the needs of the other riders. Um, so we can consider the person who's traveling with the animal, but then also consider uh, the other passengers that may not be traveling with animals, that may be traveling with small children, may have allergies or fear of animals. Quite a lot of considerations to balance. Um, and in closing, I just wanted to tell you guys like one fun, kind of funny story that doesn't have anything to do with service animal. Um, it has to do with a bird. Um, and in the early days of VIA, right after I joined the company, shortly after we launched our service in New York City, um, we had uh, a passenger who um, found a rare bird. Uh, she was bird watching uh, in Central Park. She identified a bird um, that she <coughs> noted to be a rare species of bird that was not indigenous to New York City. Um, and then she uh, approached the bird and found that the bird was injured. Um, so what she did, she took the bird and she put the bird into a shoebox and made a little nest for the bird. Um, then she contacted a wild bird sanctuary, which I believe is in like Morningside Heights, and asked if they were willing to receive the rare bird. Um, they said yes, they were. So far, so good. Um, then she booked a via for the bird uh, and did not accompany the bird. She <laughs> placed the bird gently in its shoebox on the passenger seat and instructed the driver to take the bird to the wild bird sanctuary in Morningside Heights. Shut the door. <laughs> Mission accomplished, did not accompany the bird. Um, so the driver was a little befuddled, but he tried to be polite and he said, okay, you know, that's the destination you put into the app, I will um, take the bird there. Um, so everything is going fine, but then on his journey, via the shared ride service, he picks up another passenger. Um, so another passenger gets in the back of the car, um, 
and all of a sudden she hears some sounds, she hears some rustling, some sort of aggressive beating of the wings inside of the box, um, somewhat of a smell uh, emanating from the box, and she says to the driver, like, what is happening in the front of your car? And he explains to the passenger, well, this woman, she booked a via for a bird, but she didn't go with the bird. I have to take the bird to a sanctuary, it's rare. Um, and the other passenger was like, I think birds are gross. I think this bird probably has diseases. I don't want to get a bird disease. Um, I don't want to ride in a via with a bird. Um, so she convinced the driver to pull over um, you know, uh, near the, the top of Central Park, uh, and she um, liberated the bird. Um, she she uh, removed the bird from the via, put him outside of the via, and continued on to her destination. Uh, so we later heard from the original passenger. She followed up with us and said, I'm irate, I'm furious. Um, the bird sanctuary informed me uh, that they did not receive the bird. Uh, what happened? Can you tell us? Um, and you know, we had to explain. Another passenger came in and we conducted an investigation. We found out the other passenger um, removed the bird from, from the vehicle. And she said, you know, I work in media and I'm gonna um, tweet about this and I'm gonna contact Mobile News. I'm sure they'll be very interested. Um, you know, I'm gonna contact um, the ASPCA. I'm sure they'll be very interested to hear about the cruelty to the bird on behalf of the other passenger. So she, what's that? The bird was injured. The bird was injured, but we didn't injure the bird. It was just an injured bird that was removed from the car. But then, um, so she wanted us to give her the location, the last known location of the bird. Um, so ultimately, that is what we did. We ultimately provided the last known location of the bird. Uh, she went to track down the location of the bird where it was removed from the via. Um, and then we believe, we were not able to completely verify, but we believe that she safely reclaimed the bird and then accompanied it herself, which she probably should have done in the first place, to the bird sanctuary. So anyway, it's not all about service animals. We accommodate all sorts of animals in the via, preferably with a person. <laughs> Thank you. Our next speaker is Evan Ocean. Um, after graduating law school at the University of California, Mr. Ocean built a thriving personal injury practice known for taking on challenges, challenging cases for clients up and down the West Coast and across the country. Um, Ocean Associates, his law firm, has earned a reputation as a firm that fights for the rights of even the most underdog clients. And you can apply the underdog term very literally. <laughs> It's likely that you've heard about the cases involving Coquito, the small dog that died after being put into an overhead bin on a United flight, or the case of Alejandro, another small dog that died on a Delta flight from Arizona to Newark. Both cases received extensive news coverage last year, and Mr. Ocean's work representing the families involved is helping keep the airline industry and federal regulators accountable for the welfare of our beloved family pets. Mr. Ocean recently expanded Ocean Associates Ocean and Associates to New York City with a new office here in Midtown. And he's been featured extensively on the national media for his work representing underdog clients, including four-legged friends. Turn it over to you. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored and, and pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, use the mic? <laughs> here, let me move on. Thank you. I want to apologize. I'm, I'm a bit technically challenged, so... If I screw this up, I'm sorry, but um, I, I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. Um, they've always been my best friend. And I, I wasn't a, a big animal activist. I wasn't uh, involved in dog law, so to speak, um, until I, I got involved in this case. We, we as a family have a French bulldog. Um, 
the little girls see it with the sign that says dogs are people too. Um, that's my daughter, and next to her is um, Blue Angie, who's a French bulldog. Um, to the left, up on top, is Coquito, who's also a French bulldog. And Coquito was um, the subject of a, a lot of attention. Um, it was a United Airlines incident that happened. Um, I'm banned, I'm, I'm not prohibited to speak about the case, um, but I can speak generally um, about uh, the situations surrounding uh, the event of Coquito. So I thought, just to kind of, I, I, I was going to go into a whole big discussion about the law and, and everything, and, and I, I think that's already been covered, so I kind of wanted to bring it down to the human level and just kind of show you um, what happened and my experiences in dealing with these cases and um, where I think the uh, airline industry and society in general is headed um, today and how things are different today than they were, say, 10 years ago or five years ago even. So I'm just going to play a small segment from the, uh, there was, this was an interview that was done um, by PBS here in uh, Lincoln Center. And so I'm just going to play the first part of it so we'll give you kind of a background to the Coquito story. So that, that kind of gives you the background of what happened uh, with Coquito. Um, this was kind of a wild ride. Um, I was uh, at the time in California and uh, my wife says, you have to go to New York right now. And I said, why do I have to go to New York right now? She says, you have to stop what you're doing. And I was in the process of settling a case. It was a good case, and, and I was like, you can't interrupt me now. I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of this uh, settlement. You, know, you have to stop everything, and you have to get on a plane, and you have to fly to New York, and you have to help this family. And I didn't know what she was talking about. So she basically hangs up the phone, and uh, here I am just kind of befuddled. I don't know what's going on. Um, at, at the time, uh, my wife had, had started a pet accessory business. She was designing blankets and accessories, accessories for for dogs, uh, specifically French Bulldogs. So um, I booked my flight, not knowing where I'm going or what I'm doing. I get on the plane and I start flying and I'm, and I'm saying like, what am I doing? I'm flying to New York, I'm help this family, there's this dog, there's this airline, I don't know what's going on. I get there and as I'm in flight, my um, soon-to-be client uh, is texting me, I believe. I was on the plane. He was in Texas at the time, and he was heading to New York. So we actually landed almost simultaneously in New York. We meet, and I hear this tale about what happened on the plane. Um, like I said, I can't go into the details, but there was an incident involving the puppy, as you heard, on the plane um, in United Airlines. Uh, so 
this situation was very different from what you heard today. This was basically a pain customer. Coquito was a pain customer on the United flight. Okay, as was Alejandro, who I'll I'll play a small segment about Alejandro after this. Um, it was on the flight, and as you saw, they, they found him in an overhead bin. Again, I, I can't go into the facts, but um, he, 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 was, he was, you know, in an overhead bin, and he, and he died. Um, dogs are looked at as luggage, essentially, on planes as real chattel. And this is kind of the way they're looked at across the board, across the country. There are some variations between state to state, but as I would learn in my quest to fight for you know, these, these dogs and these, these pets, is that they don't have much rights. They really don't. Um, oftentimes, um, dogs are placed in these um, cargo facilities, they're, they're stuck in the belly of a plane uh, where sometimes they're pressurized, sometimes they're not, um, sometimes they're given water, sometimes they're not. Uh, there's all kinds of horrible conditions that happen and that's not with one airline in particular, that's been my experience that I've seen in, in, in a lot of airlines and they're, they're treated horribly. So don't ever put your dog in an underbelly of a plane, ever. I would, I would say that from what I know, I mean, just never ever do that. The dogs that I'm talking about here, actually, Kokita was, was, was on the plane, okay, so with, with this person, was, was on the plane. Um, it's kind of a fluke the way it happened, but nonetheless it happened, you know, because the, the, the mentality and the thought process is that dogs are, are dogs. Now, service dogs, unfortunately, today are looked at by uh, society in general, I think, is kind of a kind of a scam. It's kind of a hustle. That's kind of what a lot of people feel in general, in, in the mainstream. That's that's been my experience. It wasn't the way it was when um, my mom who had lost her vision, you know, late in life, where somebody would have a, a dog, a braille dog, and they'd be walking with a dog, they they'd say, Yeah, it's a service dog. Today, there's a lot of people that are really irritated and annoyed. They don't want to see dogs. They don't want to see, you know, um, birds. They don't want to see animals seated with them. But the irony here is that 44%, and this was, this was an interesting study um, that was done by Wakefield Research, 44% of millennials see their pets as starter children. So it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a strange thing that's going on. It's almost like a dichotomy. You have some people that are, that are seeing their dogs as, as people, as, as family members, and then you have other people on the other end of the spectrum that are just like, get that dog away from me, get that bird away from me, I don't want it around me. You know, it, it offends me. So there's this tug of war that's going on. And that was a tug of war that I experienced in, um, in my fight for these, for these animals. Uh, so, The next, the next, I, you know, I, I was, I was going to do it a little different, but I'm just going to kind of ad lib this. I'm going to, I'm going to let you see the, the, a small story that was, this was done in Good Morning America. This was uh, Alejandro. Alejandro was a Pomeranian. This is still going on. Uh, that was on a flight from the West Coast to the East Coast. 
this will kind of explain to you what it is. This was also a pain passenger. This was a dog that was put on the plane alone. So, so the thing is, see what's what's going on is, is pets are really family members today, and I think that the laws need to be changed and they need to be modified, and I don't think a dog or or a pet needs to necessarily be an emotional support dog or emotional support pony or or any of that. I think I think if, if somebody wants to bring their pet on a on a plane or or in some type of transportation, they should be able to, as long as it's not creating a problem for other, um, for other passengers or other, other people. Uh, it's just, it's, it's an evolution of society. Things have changed. Things are changing. They're gonna continue to change. Um, I, I've recently become involved in the pet accessory business myself. We have a, a harness that we've created and, and I've had the opportunity to interact with with people that I, I didn't normally interact with. And I can tell you that things are really changing. This is a, a totally new world now, and things are gonna to continue to change. So the law is evolving. Um, there was one law that was um, presented to the- Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. We'd like to get more videos, show up. I'm trying to go to the next screen, sorry. I wanted to go to, um, there was a bill. Okay, okay so there was a, there was a bill that Senator Alcantara had, um, yeah, there should be one more. I'm not sure. Just go back to the, uh, 
the main screen. I'm not sure. I can't see them. Um, well, yeah, these are these are some lots. If we go back just a little bit, which one's the this one? Okay. Okay. So, United is is based in Illinois. There's certain laws that uh, one can uh, get benefit from in Illinois, and there's the ability to get punitive damages in Illinois. Um, for loss of a a pet, there's certain laws, there's certain certain facts that need to be complied with, but that's one of the most pet friendly states. It's the only state that I found that had punitive damages. Um, what I'm what I'm bringing up here is this is a a, a law that Senator Alcantara had had set forth after Coquito had passed away, and it was I mean it was a great law. It, this is kind of the outline of it. Um, it was the Pet Passengers Bill of Rights. Unfortunately, <coughs> I just found out today that it died in committee. Hopefully, we'll be able to get it back on the books. Um, but as you can see, um, things happen. Um, the media reacts. Legislators come out, but then it just kind of fizzles out. I think now's the time to promote laws that will effectively and efficiently um, support what's going on in society. Um, and and make major changes. So I'd encourage everybody to, you know, pr promote, you know, more pet-friendly legislations. I think after the meeting today, and maybe maybe this week, I'll I'll be in contact with um, your people, and we can see if we can get this back back on the books because the laws are horrible. They're absolutely horrible. Um, this is the uh, it actually had a number, um, Senate Bill 8006. So if you want to look it up, you can see it. Um, it's not the law, but uh, it's got some great stuff in here. Anyway, uh, that's that's pretty much you know what I wanted to uh, what I wanted to say. Um, it was there's there were some great um, things that came out of this whole thing with Coquito and Alejandro, and it's still evolving. And uh, I, I just would like to see kind of what happens in the future. I think it's going to be. You know, lots of good stuff, and you know, got to keep an open mind. You know, pets are family members today. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, now we're going to have a Q and A, Barry. So, just before we we open it up to the the audience, I just want to first start by thanking all of our panelists. Um, it's really been a fascinating discussion tonight. Um, and, you know, we really have an array of speakers here. You know, maybe at first um, glance it doesn't seem like this is how it all fits together, but we have, we have government, um, we have private attorneys kind of taking on um, the role of holding um, entities accountable to their rights. We have um, nonprofit groups that are that are working, as well as um, private transportation companies, and and how does that that all fit together? Um, transit is is a broad category. Um, here in New York, you know, we have so many different kinds of transit, and if you can't look at um, transit as a bus ride or uh, a taxi ride or 
these things in, in isolation. It's, it's all interconnected and it's complicated, just like you see from the discussion of um, the existing legislation, it's, it's really messy. And how does it all um, fit together? Um, so just before we open it up um, to the audience, I just wanted to ask um, our, our panelists if they could um, touch on um, just a few questions. Um, and I open this up to, to the panel, whoever wants to jump in and answer. Um, so I just want to start by asking, to, to what extent do you think challenges around um, companion animal transportation are best addressed um, by legislation or government action um, versus the, the market stepping up in response um, to the demand for um, companion animals, um, whether they be just a regular companion animal or a service animal, which is mandated by the law, um, and, and how altering social norms play into all of this. Well, I can talk about it from a, a perspective of private ride-sharing company, which is that, you know, I think every company is different and provides different types of services to their passengers. So for us, because we focus on shared rides, it's really important to be able to have our unique ability to balance the needs of people who travel with companion animals uh, with the needs of our other passengers who don't travel with companion animals, who might travel with children, who might be elderly, um, or who might have disabilities that make it challenging for them to be in a vehicle with companion animals, um, and to balance all of those concerns. So, you know, if there was a law that said, you can bring any type of companion animal into any vehicle without restriction or restraint, I think that would pose a lot of challenges for us, right? Because there might be someone who had an emotional support squirrel or a companion snake, and they really like to travel with that animal. But if they were seated, you know, in a mattress van with five other passengers, including a, a mom who was traveling with her two small children, you know, that might make us unable to provide an effective, safe, shared transportation experience uh, for all of those riders. Uh, and so, I think every company will balance those needs in sort of a unique way, but I don't necessarily think that a blanket piece of legislation could, could help us address that. Anyone else want to jump in on that? Sure. Um, my perspective will be from emergencies and disasters, and in those scenarios, animals are extremely high risk of being separated from their families. Lost, left behind, dying in any of those scenarios and laws that improve access that allow people to help themselves to self-rescue which is a first responder term um, makes it makes the um, subsequent response safer less resource intensive and allows um, government and ngos to really focus on the broad population and not the very intensive onesie twosies i think the laws are just a mess um, i mean how can you pay $125 to bring your dog on a plane, not in cargo, but on the plane, in a carrier bag, and then not be given any rights. I mean, you're a passenger, you're a paying passenger, you would think you'd have some rights, but you're, you're, you're a piece of luggage. So in some ways it almost makes kind of common sense, I mean in a twisted way, to put a dog in an overhead bin and store it like a piece of luggage, because that's the way they're looked at, as a piece of luggage. So, so there needs to be laws that will promote 
animals being treated with respect and with dignity, like the family members that they are today? I think it's kind of two levels because you're dealing with a transportation entity that is saying, bring your animal, here's the price, you're willing to do it, you're willing to pay for it. So in that instance, I think there should be regulations or rules that govern so that what happened didn't happen. And then there's the other instance where, um, like with VIA, they're, they're not saying bring your animal, we're welcome any kind of animal, here's the fee, so that it would be a different situation than um, where the airline is actually inviting you and charging you to do it and then they need to take the responsibility. So I think we already have a ton of laws, but it's probably different kinds of legislation for different kinds of transportation perhaps. Um, just, you know, my thought. But also I think maybe it might depend on the type of animal too. Like right now, even the Air Carrier Access Act, when we're talking about emotional support animals and service animals, still say like rodents, spiders, uh, reptile or snakes aren't can't be considered either of those and aren't going to be welcome on the plane. So I think it's something maybe to look at. Maybe the committees could could kind of try to uh, tease that out and see what could be done or could you know isn't feasible. Um, my my next question for the panel is. Transit is something that is, is temporary, it's, it's fleeting. Um, you know, I, in my personal practice, I deal a lot with um, situations involving companion mails and housing. And, and, that, and I think um, you probably do as well. Um, and that, that poses a different set of circumstances because the, the animal resides with its, um, with its person. Um, but when you travel, you know, the companion animal is, except maybe in the case of this bird, um, it's also traveling with that individual, but it's um, a much shorter period of time. It's not an ongoing, um, continuous relationship like with a housing provider. Um, with a, a transit carrier, it's, it's much shorter. Um, and so my question is, how do you think that that affects the relationship um, between companions and transit from each of your individual perspectives. I, I guess I'll go first since nobody. Uh, I mean, in housing, yeah, definitely emotional support animals under Fair Housing Act are, are allowed. Um, because again, I mean, it, it's, it could be the difference between somebody living independently or having to live in an institution. So I think that it is, um, you know, uh, a different circumstance. Be but then again, that person who needs to live in the house with a companion animal or an emotional support animal needs to go out and maybe work, do grocery shopping, and depending on what their issue is, they might not be able to travel without that companion animal because of the stress of going out alone. Um, but again, that might rise to the level of service animal. Um, you know, it, it's really hard to try to, to figure this all out. I think that, you know, if I, I, I'm an animal lover, I have two dogs, I would love to take Amtrak to Florida and not have to drive 24 hours straight. 
but I can't take my pet on the train, so I drive. Um, you know, but again, I think that it's also personal responsibility. I've seen people walking their dogs on the street, dogs well behaved, they're well cared for, but the, and the owner is very responsible, cleans up after the dog, and then you have some owners who you know, aren't as responsible, and I think in the, the, like the VIA situation, that could be a big problem in a you know, couple of passengers in a confined area if you have an owner that isn't respectful of other folks. Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, in that, in that context, it is important, you know, we don't necessarily think that because the relationship is short, uh, that it's just transactional, and as soon as someone leaves the VIA, then our relationship with them is over. We try to cultivate repeat customers and have people that come back to our service and depend on our service and rely on our service, um, and that can involve having people who are traveling with their animals. Uh, with service animals, of course, people need their service animals to go out into the public sphere and function, but even with companion animals or pets, some people like like to have their animals with them um, and you know we try to balance those different competing needs in a way that enables people to live full lives with their pets. Um, I think some of the challenges come up when you know the pet is uh, not you know uh, well behaved uh, maybe has accidents in the vehicle maybe another rider tries to pet the animal and the animal bites or snarls or scares the rider. Uh, we've also had a, a novel situation that came up once about a driver uh, who wanted to drive with an emotional support animal with a companion animal on the front seat of her vehicle uh, and passengers reacted negatively to that. Uh, so there's a lot of novel issues um, you know, that, that come up in these contexts. And I don't think that the short duration uh, of the transaction uh, necessarily makes them you know, less pressing or you know, less, uh, less important to address. Um, I, I, I think it's very simple. Um, airlines, um, trains, buses, they're common carriers. They need to be held to a higher standard, period, across the board. Service animals are an extension of the person. They help the person out, okay? Paying passengers, paying animals, well, they're paying animals, they're paying passengers. Common carriers, you gotta hold them to high standard. So that's my opinion. Um, I, th I think the impact is the sense that with transportation you have lots of choices. So if we say no, you can go with another shared ride, you can go with another airline, you can drive. Um, and housing, right, you, you choose one year lease or live there longer. So I feel like it's just easier to write it off. It's, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a piece of luggage. It's not a family member that we have to accommodate. But ironically, you can take a piece of luggage on the MTA in a non-disaster, but not, an, not a large breed dog. Um, and it's the focus of animals as property that becomes problematic. We experienced that um, in cruelty seizures. So in 2013, uh, we did a massive dogfighting bust of five states, um, eight different crime scenes. One of the crime scenes was actually a fight in progress that we knew about. And uh, we got all these dogs, um, 347 of them fighting dogs, and we housed them in Gainesville. And the courts uh, view evidence as evidence whether it's a fighting dog, whether it's a firearm, whether it's an illegal substance, uh, you put it in a locker, no big deal. The laws treat dogs the same way. That case, a federal case, went on for over a year to a cost of $3 million. What animal welfare organization, what municipal county shelter, including New York City's ACNC, can afford $3 million on 367 dogs? 
by treating animals as property in that way, sometimes some animal cruelty enterprises become too big to fail because it's too expensive to prosecute. Yeah, animals as property. That's a, a topic of a whole other um, <laughs> panel that uh, poses a lot of interesting issues. Um, I just have one more question that I want to pose to our panel before I open it up to the, to the audience. Um, just focusing in on um, the service animal and emotional support animal issue. Um, Evan, as you mentioned, there's a lot of changing public perceptions and people you know, think that someone's taking advantage of it, which really, um, you know, maybe there's a few bad apples that, that ruin the bunch and it spoils it for people that have true legitimate um, disabilities. Um, under the city law, um, you know, it's enough to be perceived as having um, an impairment. You don't, that, that's enough to qualify um, you for protection. Um, and recently in 2018, there was a New York state law, um, I believe passed, that made it um, illegal to represent that your your companion animal was a maybe it's just dogs was a service dog, um, and and also empowered um, different municipalities in New York State to issue um, service license so that um, people could recognize them. And New York City actually is, used to issue um, service dog tags and got out of the business of doing that a year maybe two years ago. Um, and actually, maybe you could speak to why, but um, <laughs> um, I guess my question is, is when um, you're traveling with a service animal or an emotional support animal on various forms of transit, um, how, how that interplay and that the permissible questioning takes place um, and how in your various roles, you you deal with that um, because really you are limited to very um, to two questions, and there are many people that may not have a visible disability, such as a seeing eye disability, um, that's still like you mentioned a psychiatric disability, which would not at all be readily apparent, but yet the dog is trained to perform uh, specific tasks. Um, so if you could each speak to that in your, your various roles. Um, to answer the question why New York City stopped issuing the, the tags for service animals was because of confusion. There were a lot of businesses that if you didn't have that tag thought that you didn't, they didn't have to let the animal in with their handler, which was a uh, direct conflict with the Americans with Disabilities Act. So in order to stop the confusion, um, they didn't. Uh, issue that license anymore um, but uh, you know I think and then to the other part with the two questions I think you know one if it's an obvious disability like a person who is blind and they have a guide dog yeah asking the questions you know isn't necessary and shouldn't be done under the law because it's obvious that the animal is being used for the person's disability um, but after asking those two questions, if the animal is misbehaving or barking or nipping at somebody or you know not housebroken, then at that point the the business or the transportation provider could say, you know, 
that it's not a service animal or it's not a trained service animal so that under that law they didn't you know need to to take the the animal um, but again I mean then there's the bigger picture of if the animals well behaved you know why ask it, assume maybe that the person has some kind of hidden disability whether it is you know the animal's going to detect if they're about to have a seizure or something if the animal is well behaved not bothering anybody um, you could s simply assume maybe that it's a service animal and let the person and the animal ride on the train or whatever and not worry about it because it's it's not doing anything wrong and it's not bothering anybody else. I certainly, if somebody boarded uh, my train with me and the animal was with them, you know, it wouldn't phase me in the least. So, I mean, maybe if it was a spider or something, but not a dog or a cat or any other kind of domestic animal. <clears throat> I, I've, I've got an interesting case right now. Um, it, it's, it's kind of a hybrid. It's, it's a dog who is a protection dog. I actually have video footage of it. I, I could, if I would have known it was going this direction, I might have had it. It was a prote personal protection dog, big shepherd, um, fierce when he gets the attack. You know, when he'll, he'll turn it on and he'll he'll be fierce. I mean, just I mean, just get out of his way, take anything down. I've seen him in attack mode. Then you change him, and then he's this great family dog. He's this loving, protective, nurturing, loving dog that you know you would think is like 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 an angel. Well, well, this particular dog was put in the underbelly of a of a plane, okay, and he was sent to do some you know advanced training. I mean, he's a working dog. He works for the family. He takes care of the family. He takes care of the kids. He takes care of the house. I mean, he's he's a basically a, a paid employee essentially. I mean, he gets food and, and shelter, but that's what he does. So he was sent to a training facility to go, you know, focus his skills and his, um, you know, whatever, whatever he's trained to do. And on his way back, um, he's left, um, he gets loose, somehow gets loose in the, in the cargo hold. And they let him, they let him run himself to death. And he, he, he dies. I mean, he, he literally, he, he, he just overheats and, and, and he dies, okay? So that's kind of an interesting kind of a hybrid. I mean, is he a service dog? Well, I mean, in a way, he's a service dog because he performs a service and does all these tasks. But in a way, he's a family dog. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this is going to play out because I think this could be one of those cases, if, if we decide to move forward, which we may, um, where it could change some laws. It's, it's, it's got that feel to it. Um, and again, I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go. We're in negotiations right now, and um, but uh, I don't know. I, I I think it's really hard to say when putting these labels and these distinctions on on, on dogs and pets and family members or not. I think things are changing. So, I don't know if I answered the question, but I just thought I'd throw that out there because that's a really different thing that that's out there. So. I think that um, it speaks to where we are moving in terms of a society and pet ownership and what is a pet to us. Um, I don't have any proof, but I feel like designer breeds have really helped 
Like, my mom grew up with dogs in the yard until white little doodles appeared, and now she pushes it around in a cart, and now she'll see those sad commercials on TV and whip out the credit card. Um, so I feel like things are changing, and the broadening of the definition of service animal or emotionally support animal just speaks to um, a desire in our community and our society to, like, have our animals with us all the time, like family members. And... Um, the uh, emotional um, support animal is giving um, private entities um, the space to say, okay, like, we'll do this. Um, so, you know, and, and then there's the um, health privacy protection, which creates another bit of layer of protection in there, too, for people to not have to explain themselves. Um, so I, I think it's more about people are being creative in finding ways to take the pets that they view as family members into places where they're allowed to go to and they want them with them and they should be there with them. Um, so I think in the future, we'll all kind of be there and we won't need these laws and protections to kind of shield um, those from those individuals who aren't into animals and don't want them in their space or companies who just don't want to like manage the, the risk and liability. You want to jump in? If not, I'll open it up to the audience. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think this, this is one area where I think there is probably the greatest degree of uh, confusion and lack of clarity around our service. Uh, and so on one hand, it would be probably better for like groups of, you know, a, different stakeholders and, you know, industry and government to maybe come up with some sort of guidelines or, you know, better ways to, to help to classify uh, these different types of animals because for us we receive probably the greatest number of complaints around, you know, whether an animal is actually a service animal or not um, or whether a driver improperly asked somebody um, the, the questions uh, that, that were permitted or, you know, specifically around the issue of licensing. We see a lot of, oh, is your animal a licensed service? animal. Oh, yes. Oh, show me the license. Show me the proof. And, you know, as Cleo mentioned, now New York doesn't issue those licenses anymore and people are not required to carry those licenses under the ADA. So this is an area that causes a lot of confusion and a lot of concern. Um, I think we've come up with a decent system to handle it, but I think the most important thing to do uh, from a company's perspective like ours, uh, you know, is to, to be flexible and to consider things on a case-by-case -case basis and not necessarily to have a rigid application of your rules because so many novel cases and so many unique corner cases and test cases come up all the time and, and challenge us. Um, I have a funny ASPCA story too, actually just made me think of it when you were talking about the commercials uh, and, and your mom, because my dad uh, loves animals. We've had pets my whole life and a big ASPCA fan, uh, always sees those sad commercials on TV and he's gotten a little bit older and maybe a little more forgetful. So we went home, we were trying to help him out a little bit with his finances and like, you know, kind of paying some bills and stuff. We found out he had three different subscriptions to ASPCA <laughs> and we were like, dad, what's going on? You have three different monthly regular contributions you make to the ASPCA. And he it's like every time I see one of those commercials, I just whip out my credit card and subscribe. I appreciate your dad. He, he appreciates you. All right, thank you for sharing. Um, so I'm gonna open it up to the, to the audience for questions. Um, and we're recording audio, so I'm just gonna repeat your, your question um, so then the panel can answer it. Yes. Hi, my question is for Evan. You said a few times that the dogs were paying customers. Does that mean that you tried to sue on their behalf? And separately, I'm curious to know what causes of action to consider. 
So just to quickly repeat, um, are, can dogs um, sue on their own behalf and what causes of action? Um, well, no, dogs can't sue um, on their own behalf, although um, my, my dogs become kind of a mascot for my firm. Um, however, the actions that can be brought that, that I was considering were, you know, negligence, you know, um, breach of contract, it's a breach of contract. Uh, there's a, a law, specific law in Illinois that um, I can give you the, the site to. Uh, it talks about animal cruelty, where you can give punitive damages. Uh, happy to share that information with you. Uh, but uh, only under the Illinois law was I able to find that if a person suffers emotional distress, that they can actually bring emotional distress damages. So you're really looking at it as like a a chattel, uh, you know, a uh, piece of property across the board. That could change. So stand by. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yes. A question for Aaron. I noticed one of the things that you said drivers are allowed to ask regarding service animals or what tasks is your animal trained to perform. Does that not draw the line though into asking essentially what that person's disability is? Like, especially the types where it's like, you'll bark and let me know I have a seizure coming. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does that not cross the line? Yeah, so, so yeah, just repeat the question quickly is, how, do, how does asking the question of what task a service animal is trained to perform not cross the line into improperly inquiring as to the disability? So we didn't make up those questions. Those questions come to us from the ADA and from federal guidance. And so we instruct drivers to ask those questions in exactly the form in which they are written and not to ask any additional supplemental or follow-up questions. So the line is already drawn for us. And you know, as drivers are independent contractors, we don't have policies that we enforce upon the drivers. We just remind them of their obligations under federal law. So a person might disclose, you know, I have seizures and the dog barks to alert me to seizures, and that would be an appropriate response, the question wouldn't be improper. But if the driver then followed up and asked some more questions about seizures or said, like, you don't look like you have seizures or made any other further commentary, that would be prohibited. Just, I'm wondering from the, the city's perspective, um, when they're looking at a housing accommodation, you know, I think that a more detailed inquiry is permissible. So when you're looking at a transit situation, how how detailed of an inquiry would you um, allow um, the entity or the, the carrier to, to go? And, you know, does that vary if it's, um, you know, a regular service or a one-time service? Like you, you mentioned that you actually had a complaint that you dealt with at the New York City Commission of Human Rights um, with a regular rider. And would that analysis change if it was more of a one-off situation? Um. I don't think it would change because, uh, as Aaron said, you, ha there, you have the specific questions you can ask. And then, in, like in the seizure instance, the person would say, well, the, do the dog would detect if I'm going to have a seizure. You don't know what disability the person has that, you know, makes them have seizures. And that, so you still don't know what their disability is. You might surmise because you know of certain types of disabilities that seizure is a symptom. Um, but I think uh, in the housing instance, again, it's, it's under the federal rule that, that you are allowed to ask a little bit more 
Um, you can also get a doctor's note if it's an emotional support animal. Same thing under your carrier. If it's emotional support, you can get a doctor's note. So I think that really the laws are, are governing what the entities can ask and not ask. Another point, I don't think we touched on this at all, but you know, uh, the regulations governing service dogs uh, do now explicitly cover not only physical disabilities but also um, certain types of psychiatric or psychological disabilities and this is also something that's come up that we've had to educate people specifically about veterans uh, who may suffer from PTSD and have service animals because of that and so they might not have any type of recognizable disability but they can have a, a service dog who lawfully helps them with their PTSD. Yes. From Vina about how you do this, how would you all suggest educating people on, I guess, evolving, I guess, how well, pets are family members or service animals? How would you, because I feel a lot of this, even though there are lots, I feel a lot of it's a cultural issue and a generational one. So, and a lot of people, if you tell them, they may not just get it. And even if you train, well, I know you're training within Vina, the question is education and cultural perceptions. I, I, I'd like to address that. Actually, I was I was going to mention um, a, a large part of my um, my charge was that I felt there was a criminal act going on. I mean, there's and, and maybe ASPCA will back me on this. Um, I, I think that. Uh, to leave a dog in a, in a cargo hold and let him suffocate, you know, because he doesn't have any water, he doesn't have any air to breathe, is a criminal act. I mean, it's, it's abuse. I, I think the only way to really make things happen is to push harsher laws. I mean, criminal laws. There, there needs to be criminal prosecution. And then I think um, that in the airline industry, transportation entities, they're going to step up to the plate. But until that happens, I mean, they're going to do exactly what happened here with this with this uh, dog fighting rank. They're just gonna do a, a, a Pinto um, analysis. You know, the Pinto, you know, the hit in the rear car, you know, we learned it in torts where, you know, everybody knew that the Pintos were gonna explode, but they still went ahead and they did it, right? Because it was a cost-benefit analysis. Right, mm -hmm. right. Price tag on life. Exactly, so, so I, say, I say there needs to be criminal prosecution, and then they're gonna step back. That's the only way, I mean, I mean, you, you start indicting CEOs and you start indicting, you know, um, you know, corporate executives that, that hide behind their corporate shield, you know, things are going to change. I mean, for sure. And um, I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just my approach. I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a little extreme, maybe I'm a little out there, but you know, I think that's what has to happen. And do you, see, I guess a quick follow-up, do you see any changes on the horizon? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think I think um, public support has a large influence in what these big entities will do. I think if it's going to hurt their bottom line, I think they might step back, but only for a little while. I think they might do it if if their if their stock's starting to go down or if they're starting to feel the heat from some of their shareholders, they they might back up. But to really make effective change, there needs to be laws in place that criminalize actions for animal fighting um, 
was very open. I mean, it still is in some communities. Uh, for instance, in um, Virginia, we were going to go to um, serve a warrant for cockfighting, and we kept getting confused because we kept uh, driving by cockfighting yards that were just in their front yard. Um, but for the last, I'd say, seven or six years, we've um, really gone after blood uh, dogfighting very aggressively and put a lot of resources behind it, including having our government relations work with us. Um, and we've seen um, upward departures on sentencing. We've seen years for dogfighting that, that this country has never seen. And what that has translated on the street is less dogfighting activity, more um, going underground, people opting out of the business because it's too risky. One person in, the, uh, in specific who was a legend, um, a dog man, um, got out of the fighting business and just the breeding. We still got him. Um, but still, we're, we're, it used to be without a price to fight animals, and you could do it, and it wasn't a big deal, and now there's a price to pay, and now we're having to work harder to find and make those cases. What we see with the animal humane, I mean, recently there's, there's been a lot, of, a lot of legislation, like the greyhound, they're, mm -hmm. they're no more, right? In, in Florida, they, in California, um, there's been you know, sweeping legislation, and things have to be criminalized. All I can say is you're, you're not the first person to suggest it, and I, I wouldn't rule it out. So send us your comments. Send us your suggestions. Yeah. And also reach out to your city council member and try to get legislation introduced. I, I agree. So our, our, we actually had a thing with our dog. Our dog's heart stopped. He was really sick. And um, we, we couldn't get him to the, to the vet. Nobody would take him. And I, I agree. Yeah. I have absolutely the same issue. Um, my 
not happens to be a cripple, and so there's that additional layer of discrimination against her, regardless of how well behaved she happens to be. You know, the, yes, I'll, I'll hear it on the phone. They'll be like, what kind of dog is it? You seem to take pit bulls. They're like, I don't know, we don't take dogs. And why did you ask what kind of dog it was? Mm-hmm. Mr. Arms. Um, I think we have time for at least one more question. Yes. Uh, I have a question on uh, this, uh, are there any minimum design standards, uh, in particular in the, uh, on the, in the airline industry, uh, in transporting uh, uh, dogs? Like, let's say in the cargo home you mentioned, uh, are there like a minimum design standard or no standard at all that, uh, you know, in transporting an animal, you need to have a minimum uh, 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 whatever temperature range or oxygen level or uh, the room size or pressurized or not pressurized? Are there any minimum standard or no standard at all in transporting animals in the airline industry? The question is on standards for transporting animals in the airline industry. There are standards. It has to be pressurized. There are definitely standards. However, however, it's a big however, a lot of times those standards are overlooked. Um, in fact, there's, uh, there's temperature standards. There's, um, like there was an embargo on um, taking um, pets. There's very specific requirements of when you can take a, a dog and, and transport them and the temperature that the dog, you know, the, the temperature at, at the location where the dog's gonna land and when the dog's received and when the dog is gonna have a layover is, is supposed to be, but oftentimes airlines overlook those. Um, and, and these are self-imposed laws a lot of times are, that they set up within their own um, entities. I, I'm happy to share some of that. Yeah, like, like, let's say the room uh, or the container in the cargo hold, uh, are there like oxygen uh, tanks or to feed the, uh, the room where the animals are located? or? I haven't seen any oxygen tanks. Um, on, in the second case that I talked about, Alejandro, um, it was a whole tug of war to get the dog back. And when we finally got the dog back, there was blood everywhere. It was, and he was given to us in, you know, like some, uh, you know, some ice and, and just kind of like, like thrown to us. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it wasn't much uh, respect. That's not the United. That's the the other Delta uh, case that I'm working on. Just as a question is what happens when they're in route. <coughs> That's a big question. All right, one final question in the back. The question is in non-emergency situations in the city, what's the rule for transporting um, a, a pet, um, a non-emotional um, support or service animal on um, buses and trains? It would be in a carrier, so you could have your pet carrier, and and it can't block an aisle. So either you know on the seat or on your lap or in this by your feet in front of the seat. Right. So actually, for the MTA, um, I believe pets are permitted, at least dogs in carriers, um, enclosed. 
Um, you see bags. I'm not really sure that that suffices, but nobody gives you a hard time. You don't see a lot of um, enforcement. Um, but if you're talking about other, you know, buses, um, like for instance, um, Greyhound, um, I don't believe pets are permitted. Um, Amtrak now permits um, dogs, but just for certain rides of certain lengths, um, not for longer rides. They, they do permit um, service animals, but not emotional support animals. Um, if you're riding uh, Metro North, they allow you to have a dog in not in a carrier, just, just out. Um, I'm not sure for PATH, but you know it's it's actually very confusing. If you you wanted to actually find out what each carrier's policy is, it takes a lot of um, research, and you know that's just for dogs. How they deal with other animals, I'm not as familiar. I don't know if anyone else has has knowledge of that. And also, yeah, the taxi um, and limousine commission. Um, I don't believe they're required to accept pets at all. Um, Large breed dogs have it the hardest. Right, um, they're the ones who are most excluded because you can't find a bag big enough. And then how do you go up and down the stairs with a dog in a crate, um, et cetera? And then they're the ones who you're gonna have also challenges going the private route because a lot of cab drivers don't want a large drooly dog, you know, in their back seat. And um, you know they're gonna exercise some discretion on the on the streets. All right. Um, I want to thank everyone so much for your attention and your consideration for, for this panel, for your excellent questions. Um, thanks to Marissa for doing a great job moderating. And that's all. And um, thank you again, everyone.